I'm Sarah Resnick. And I'm LaShawn Moore. And we are the hosts of the Weave Podcast, a project of the weaving yarn shop, Just Yarn and Fiber. Why do we make things by hand? And why do we make them beautiful? Led by these questions, as well as curiosity about why working with our hands remains vital and valuable in the modern world, author and maker Melanie Fallick went on a transformative, inspiring journey. Traveling across continents, she met quilters and potters, weavers and painters, metalsmiths, printmakers, woodworkers, and more, and uncovered the truths that have been speaking to us for millennia, yet feel urgently relevant today. We make in order to slow down, to connect with others, to express ideas and emotions, feel competent, create something tangible and long-lasting, and to feed the soul. In revealing stories and generous original photographs, Making a Life captures all the joy of making and the power it has to give our lives authenticity and meaning. Hello, everyone. Hello, Melanie. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much. I'm honored to be here. I love listening to your podcast. Well, we're honored to have you. Can you start out by telling us about your background and where you're from? Well, I grew up in New Jersey. And grew up in a family with a mom and a dad and brother. My dad was, when I was growing up, mostly taught architecture and engineering. And my mom first was a history and a psychology teacher in a high school and then transitioned into being a psychotherapist. And as a kid, I, I think the thing I was most passionate about was gymnastics. And I went to college in Washington, D.C., where I majored in French and linguistics. I had an idea that I was going to travel the world and, and teach English as a way of supporting that. I did travel quite a bit when I was in college, both in study abroad programs and in travel related to that. And I think that was you know, the most um, impactful thing that I did in college. I didn't love the college I went to, but I kind of came up with a bunch of opportunities um, because of that. So it worked out really well. And instead of traveling the world and teaching English as a second language, I actually stayed in Washington, D.C. for a little while after I graduated and I worked for an international foundation. And then I moved to New York to work in publishing. And in the my early days in New York, I started to knit and I became really interested in handwork as a way to be creative and to learn about women's lives past and present. And then ultimately I combined that passion uh, and interest into my career in publishing. That's so beautiful. You talked about how you began working in publishing through having a passion for learning about women and how they work with fiber arts or how they work with becoming creative. Mm -hmm. Can you go a bit more into depth with how you exactly got into that field and what led you to creating your book, Making a Life? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so when I moved to New York, I wanted to work in publishing. I had always gotten a lot of attention in school for being a good writer and I was interested in editing. And so I ended up getting a job at a, a food magazine actually 
Um, and then I started to knit and got the idea that I could combine the career of publishing um, with, you know, my interest in in handwork, much of which was done by women. And uh, so I started trying to do freelance writing, and I actually got some really wonderful opportunities. I was able to travel to the Shetland Islands to meet and interview knitters there and write an article for Vogue Knitting. And I got to go to Russia, to the Orenburg region to spend time with uh, lace knitters there. And I went to a sheep farm in Virginia and spent time learning how to spin. And that all led me to an idea for a book, which, um, which I was able to write, which is called Knitting in America. And it was in some ways, similar to my most recent book, Making a Life, I spent time traveling around the country, uh, meeting and um, interviewing, eating meals with and hanging out with knitters and people who raised animals for fiber and people who spun and, and did dyeing with both natural and with chemical dyes. And I wrote a book that really explored their lives, their relationship to knitting and why it was important to them. And then that led me to write another book called Kids Knitting, which is what it sounds like. I, it was a book that was aimed at children or children at heart to learn how to knit. And that led me to getting a job with Interweave Knits Magazine as their editor, which then led me to a job with Abrams, which is a New York City book publisher. And there, um, I ended up having my own imprint that was called um, STC Craft, Melanie Fowler Books. And for that imprint, which I led for about 12 years, I worked with all sorts of um, authors and makers and photographers and graphic designers, and stylists, and et cetera, on creating books about craft and creativity. Um, what I realized over the years is that that my skill was in both sort of editorial and and creative direction. So I was, by virtue of lack of funds in the beginning, I, let's say when I was at Interweave Knits, I was um, planning photo shoots and <laughs> finding models and styling and, and working with designers to come up with compelling ideas for projects to um, include in, in the magazine. And, and prior to that, with Knitting in America and Kids Knitting, in addition to traveling and, and working on those books, I had to like work with a photographer and do all the styling. And, and so I was really combining this interest in the visual aspect um, with the interest in the storytelling, with my interest in you know, technique um, and how to, to do things. And um, I stayed at Abrams for, I think it was 12 years. I think I left in 2015. And that it was after I left Abrams that I decided or got the idea to write Making a Life. And um, the job at Abrams was for so long. I mean, I think all my jobs were dream jobs and, until I changed and they were no longer what I wanted. And the job at Abrams was was so special i literally got to work with you know, i don't know like 
75 or 100. I mean, created over the course of those years about 100 different books. Um, and I, you know, it was knitting and sewing and quilting and pottery. Um, and then some books that were more um, about creativity more generally rather than just um, specific media. And, but I got to the point where I was so, um, so busy at my computer. <laughs> I was so, um, in my head. I wasn't using my hands, even though I was publishing books about handwork and creativity. I was making a good living, but I wasn't making a good life. And I realized that I was sort of planning i was thinking i couldn't leave my job because i had health insurance and my employer matched my a certain percentage of my 401k for retirement but then my husband got a job that um, had health insurance so that wasn't a problem anymore and then i realized that saving for retirement is important however it's also important that you are leading a good life in the present. And so I really needed to take a step back from so many years of feeling like I was racing through my life and sort of finding times for pleasure, like in the smallest of nooks and crannies. <laughs> and I needed to like realign myself um, and really think about what success meant to me or means to me, what, um, what brings me happiness, how I can contribute in the most positive way possible. I think sometimes when you're unhappy at a job, you can become a little bit toxic because you become, you sort of exude negativity or discontent. Absolutely. And, and uh, and I didn't, I didn't want to be toxic. I wanted to be, you know, a force for positivity. And um, so in, after I left Abrams, I had, I was still doing some editorial work for them and others. Certainly I needed to work. I just couldn't handle working quite so hard. I really needed some time and space to think, to wander, to make stuff. I mean, that was what I was drawn to. I found that when I didn't have um, all of these kind of pressing items on my to-do list and I had time to just wander that I just naturally wandered toward handwork and just began kind of dabbling in things. I mean, I was always in my adult life pretty serious about knitting and then I got involved in hand sewing. Um, so I continued those things, but then I just started playing around and doing some leather work and doing some natural dyeing and doing some paper folding. And I realized that really the, the question of why working with our hands is vital and valuable in the modern world has, was really what had been driving me for my entire career. And when I was working for the book publisher and others, I mean, there's such a strong kind of commercial bent to it. You're always saying, well, what will sell, what will sell? And, and you know, that is important because you don't get to do what you do if, you, if it's not making money in terms of your 
job when you're working for someone else. But at the core of it, my real aim was to shine a light on the value of making by hand in the modern world. And so working on the book was my way of, of really taking all these years of experience and, and, and figuring out how to articulate the ideas that were floating around inside of me for so long. Yeah. That's such an interesting journey that I feel a lot of people in general and also on this podcast have taken where they were working in an environment or in a field that they didn't feel was really true to their inner self. And they took a leap of faith and switched things around, I guess. And then they found themselves in this um, really aspirational position to create and to make things. And the things that they ended up creating were impactful to people outside of their experience or their um, particular career path. And it's it's really beautiful to hear you talk about how you found yourself in this space to creating a book that encapsulates so many different makers and, and why they make and how they make. And I'm sure you've had a lot of valuable interactions with each of your collaborators, but I'm wondering if you can talk about a couple of the makers that you met throughout your journey and what you learned from them. Yeah, I I learned so much from everyone. It's it's so hard to narrow it down, but I'll I'll sort of I'll talk about um Judith McKenzie first because she is uh a weaver as well as a natural dyer and a spinner. And I'm not sure how old she is, but maybe in her seventies. So she's been doing this um for a long time and she really has lives true to her passions and beliefs. And she probably, you know, against all odds has been able to make a, a beautiful life and a living um, based on her skills and her ingenuity and her, um, her abilities as, as a teacher. Um, and she, she said something to me um, that I thought was interesting. I mean, we were talking about making by hand and, and both of us believe it's a natural human instinct. Um, but she said humans are drawn to transformation. And she pointed out examples of pottery with clay or weavers with thread or a musician with sound. And it is part of the human experience to take raw materials and create new forms and she said, this is as natural to us as a tulip bulb making a tulip. Which is so compelling to me because I really, when I hear those words, when she said them to me and when I repeat them now, it's like coming home. I feel like I've existed in this culture in which sometimes I feel like I don't belong. You know, I remember in high school and college and thinking like, I don't want to spend my time in, in a crowded bar. And at that time it was a crowded smoky bar with super loud music, um, as a, as a regular kind of form of distraction or entertainment. Um, but that seemed to be the thing that I was supposed to want to do 
or when I got into the work world and saw the, the conformity that was expected of people in off, in many office jobs of kind of sitting still and sort of being a good, you know, follower. <laughs> <laughs> following the rules, mm-hmm. following, you know, the the systems that have been set up, some of which were really effective and some of which were very ineffective. Um, but the idea of transformation in that in that satisfaction that we get when you know we transform a piece of fabric into a garment or thread into into weaving it's so amazing in recent months i joined a pottery studio or a few months ago i joined and it's been so interesting to me to just i've been making bowls i think i've made about 60 bowls so far um not because i need 60 bowls unfortunately um, with pottery the clay can be reclaimed so you can just practice and practice and then decide which pieces you want to keep and the ones you don't can become play again mm-hmm. yeah but you know just to take a lump of clay and i've been throwing pottery on a wheel um, i'm really interested in doing some hand building as well but it's so every time i do it it feels kind of magical but magic that i'm creating with my my own hands and the dance that I'm doing with my hands and the clay and the wheel. And uh, I, I just wrote down here a quote from um, Judith that I'll share. Um, while spinning, I was, she said, I can take something that is formless and not able to be used in any true way and make it into a sail that you could sail across the Atlantic with to be able to harness the power of the wind to move you across water. That's pretty amazing. And, you know, we often talk in modern times about technology as being like this, this thing to sort of admire or seek advancement in. And we forget about the skills and the knowledge that people relied on for thousands upon thousands of years. And we're not going to, I'm not rejecting technology, but I feel like when we embrace and study and explore, let's say weaving and think about it as the, about the, the amazing ingenuity, people sort of figuring out not only how to make cloth, but how to use that cloth to sail across the ocean. Mm. So. Anyway, so you said a couple of people. So that Judith definitely has made a big impact on my life and I feel so fortunate to know her. Um, and then I wanted to mention the weavers and potters of Oaxaca. I didn't write a profile of them because I didn't feel like I was in a position to sort of tell their story. I couldn't speak their language. I didn't know enough about their history and culture, but I did go to Oaxaca and I felt like I learned so much about myself from the just experience of being with them. And Oaxaca is a state in Mexico that's home to 16 different indigenous groups. And I spent time with some Zapotec women and they were both um, potters and weavers. And, and 
they learned how to work with natural dyes and local wool and clay from their parents and grandparents who learned from their parents and grandparents before them. And it made me think so much about the strength of roots. And I, I talked to a man who spent a lot of time in Oaxaca as well. And, and he referred to his American experience um, as sort of tumbleweed, um, that feeling like tumbleweed, you know, that you many of us came from someplace else. And, and then I'll talk about my experience. My family came to this country in like the early 20th century. They were escaping what was becoming a dangerous situation for them in Europe. And, um, and I was really brought up to sort of say like, you know, you can go do anything. You can, achieve anything, you know, see the world, travel. It was very much looking at the opportunities that were, that I had that were in a way like outside of my roots, not looking back to the traditions. I mean, I don't even, I thought I was thinking about this the other night, you know, my family came from Eastern Europe and I've never gone far back and tried to do a family tree. I, I know that my grandmothers all knew how to knit. And so maybe that's where it comes from in me. But, um, but, you know, my family, my grandparents lived in New York city. They were, they became city people. They, um, and we never really talked about where their parents came from or what that culture was like. And um, being in Oaxaca really made me curious and also made me think, how good it must feel to have strong roots as opposed to feeling like a tumbleweed. Yeah, that's beautiful. And so many makers and fiber enthusiasts are in love with Oaxacan culture and all of the amazing things that they bring physically, but also there's a spirituality to the work that they do yes. that is unmatched. <laughs> yeah. I think that that's why they've had such a huge influence on what I would consider currently is a resurgence of textile making using natural fibers and natural processes. Yeah. And I think that it's the roots that kind of inform that spirituality. It's the, the wisdom of those generation after generation of living on the same land and learning how to live symbiotically within that environment. And, you know, I wonder because there's so many, so much discussion, important discussion about cultural appropriation now. And, you know, I, I, I'm just really curious about the, this American idea of like, you know, everything sort of, at our fingertips and, and we have access to it all and we can sort of pick and choose what we want. And, um, I think that's a very, very complicated issue in this global world. And I don't quite know where the answers are to sort of what's right and not right, what's fair and not fair in terms of what we share or don't share. Um, but I do think that there is a lot to be discovered within ourselves and within our own stories that, that we might take a closer look at. Absolutely. 
What also really moved me about how you structured making a life is how you named the chapters, mm-hmm. remembering, slowing down, joining hands, making a home and finding a voice. Each right. section really set the tone for the stories that followed. And I'm wondering if you can talk about your intention behind naming the chapters. Right. So each chapter is an answer to the question of what we stand to gain when we make by hand. So um, we begin with remembering, which refers to remembering our ancestors, the makers who came before us, and the skills that have served humans for thousands of years. And also remembering the joy of making that is so encouraged in childhood um, in our culture, and then kind of abandoned because we have this idea that you need to become serious and make a living and handwork isn't sort of the most obvious way to do that or the most secure way to do it. But I really feel like if we can separate out what this idea of like making a living is always this sort of top, top priority and give equal priority to making um a good life and that so sometimes the making by hand we do is extremely valuable to us or I find for me it always is but it might not be the way that I make a living but that doesn't mean it's less important um the second chapter is slowing down and that's about the value of living at a natural human pace rather than on fast forward always striving for something just out of reach I think that um, technology has gotten to the point where we literally can't keep up. It it moves too fast for our brains to process. And therefore, I feel like it makes us unable to, or it makes it difficult to even figure out like what will make us happy or stop and, and assess what's happening. Um, it's so you know, we get a moment's pause and we pick up our phone and we start looking at the news or scrolling through Instagram. And I think when we slow down and quiet down and and sort of separate ourselves from technology, we can listen to our inner voice and figure out what will bring us true contentment. Actually, last weekend, I went to Vermont to a, I guess it was glamping. So it was a campsite, but it was a very, tent that was made life very comfortable, but there was no electricity, there was no Wi-Fi, there was basically no cell service. Um, and it was just so incredibly glorious to um, wake up and think, oh, maybe I'll knit now or maybe I'll read now. And then, um, you know, when the it got kind of warm, I went for a swim in a swimming hole. And then later when it got dark and we, we had these kind of solar powered lanterns, but they didn't create a ton of light, just kind of enough light to talk to each other. If you wanted light to talk to each other and to read by, but I ended up like going to bed early and, and, and getting up early because I, I just was getting into this natural rhythm and it was, I, I kept on thinking how, um, there were moments in the day when 
you know, I was sort of transitioning, like, let's say I was working on knitting a sweater, and I wanted to put it down and give my hands a break. And I could feel in the beginning of the weekend, this compulsion to like, pick up my phone, you know, if my phone had worked, I would have been like, Oh, did I get any emails? Or did I? What, you know, how many likes do I have on Instagram? And it was such a pleasure to sort of feel that habit slip away, at least, uh, just for the weekend. <laughs> anyway, the third um, chapter is called Joining Hands, and that's about the power of community. Um, and the next one is Making a Home, which is about how we can use our, our hands to both make a nest for ourselves, but also to feel comfortable or at home in our own skin. And then the final chapter is called Finding a Voice. And that's about self-expression. And, and oftentimes when we think about finding a voice, we think of expressing our ideas with words. But when for this chapter, it's really about finding a voice with or without words. I think there's so many ways to communicate beyond words um, that we tend to not pay close enough attention to. And, um, you know, it's, it could be, it's, you know, what you might communicate in a weaving or in a dance or in a painting. And we are so focused on kind of words and, and that kind of communication that I think people sort of stop understanding or being sensitive to the expression that is nonverbal. Yeah. So that's, that's the chapters. I will say that when I started working on the book, I did not know how I was going to organize it. And it was scary. Um, Cause I didn't really know exactly what I was doing. I was just following my instincts and the idea of just like, okay, right foot, left foot, you know, just follow along and, <laughs> And see where this takes you and trust your instincts, trust your experience, um, and trust the universe to kind of reveal what it needs to reveal to make this work. And, and now I, I just, I feel so, I love the table of contents of my book. And I, when I see the, I was glad that you, I'm glad you asked a question about the chapter titles because to me, they're, they're sort of, they're, poetic and beautiful and and really reflect what I was trying to achieve and wasn't sure how I was going to achieve when I started. I absolutely agree. They do convey reflection and I would imagine you had very introspective moments when you were thinking about how you wanted to structure the text and you came up with these titles Another really wonderful part of your book is the photography. Mm -hmm. Even though the book is full of uh, a lot of insightful written content, the images really complement the text very well. Can you mm -hmm. talk about the photography and the visuals? Yes. So um, the photographer that did most of the, of the work is uh, Rin Allen. She's based in... Uh, Georgia and she is such a sensitive artist and she has a true passion for making by hand. Um, so I was lucky that she was interested in, in working on this project. And 
you know, she and I work together, I would tell her in advance of our photography sessions, you know, about who we were photographing and what I thought the themes of the the story were. And I wanted her photos to, to, um, to visually tell the story of our journey and the process of handwork and the, and communicate the sensibilities of each maker. Um, I will say we were together for a lot of photo shoots. Some of the photo shoots happened before I had done the full interview with the maker. So it was definitely, um, you know, a dance of, and it was, um, and I really wanted, I had to rely on my instincts in terms of what kind of information I shared with her in advance, but I also always wanted her to rely on her own instincts to capture the essence of what we were seeing. And I, I think those photographs that she sort of went off and, and did on her own are so important to the book and, and probably among mostly among my favorites. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I'm really curious how you found a lot of the people that you worked with and interviewed and also how you were able to manage such a vast group of people. Yeah, that was another part of the process that was um, just a lot of relying on instincts and, and experience. As I mentioned earlier, my first book, Knitting in America, was some somewhat similar in in format. So I had had the experience of traveling to meet with makers. And in that case, it was in, just in the United States. But, you know, and just in terms of like lo- the logistics of that. And uh yeah, so I had experience doing that. I'm a very organized person. So yes, like to me, when I look at the book and it's done, it feels intimidating to imagine organizing it. But again, it was just step by step. So um, some of the people who are in the book are people who I knew prior to starting my work on the book. Others are people that I came to know um, via someone else in my life, via Instagram, via a book. You know, there are so many extraordinary makers in this world, far more than I could ever, ever interview. And so I wasn't at all looking for, you know, the quote unquote best makers. I really was just trying to open myself up to different people and learning a little bit about their story and, and, and figuring out and identifying the ones who had stories that resonated with me. Um, and I, and that, Sort of, if we go back to the table of contents, I think some, somewhere inside of me, I knew like that I had to create, well, I mean, on the, I knew I had to create some sort of balance and diversity and, um, and I was really just creeping along, um, trying to make that happen. And then as pieces came together, then I could see what might be missing. There are things that are missing that I was never able to fill in. Um, I think I could write this book for the rest of my life and, and would never run out of makers. <laughs> <laughs> I think 
everybody has a story to tell. Um, I really, I appreciate the work of all the people who I did profile. Um, but I wasn't, I wasn't always looking, like it didn't, in some ways it didn't matter to me the specifics of what they made. It was more the ways in which they had, um, taken agency over their lives and, and chosen or been able to live in keeping with their passions and their values that most appealed to me. I, I can imagine it's, it's a lot to bring people together in that way, but I think you've done such a phenomenal job. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> And I'm also really curious, you know, as a maker, I know it's really difficult to sustain, whether it be financially or environmentally, and also within the realm of social navigation, social awareness. I'm curious how you're able to travel and if you've had any difficulty sustaining your practice. I know traveling is very expensive and it's often not easy to do so financially. And also yeah. given given the current situation with the COVID-19 pandemic and, you know, so much going on. I'm just curious if you've had any difficulty and if you have how you've been able to navigate. Well, I think. For me, writing, editing, and editing have been the tools I've used to make a living. Mm. And, and writing has been kind of my entryway into people's lives. And that I've really been able to, you know, call or email a potter and say, I'm really interested in your story. I'm really interested in your work. Can we talk? Can I visit you? And because I had a writing project, people are often curious to find out what I'm up to. So the writing is kind of a tool that's allowed me to explore the world and, and people. And publishing isn't, you know, the best paying profession, but I, I think I always did fine. Um, in order to work on this book, I, um, you know, I have I had a contract with the publisher and I had an advance and it did cover my travel. You know, I tried to organize all of the travel in such a way that it was economical. And, uh, you know, I think the book took me from the time I signed the contract in March, 2016, and it didn't come out until October, 2019. So that was quite a long time. I actually handed in the magic manuscript in August, 2018, which was about two and a half years after I signed the contract. So I was able to um, do some other work to make more money at, while I was working on the book and, and to sort of cover costs. I really had less of an income than I had had when I worked at Abrams, but I was, I had enough and I was so much happier. And I have found in recent years that what I need money for, I don't, I don't need as much money because I don't need as, as much sort of outside stuff. Like I don't need to consume to sort of put a band aid on some 
discontent. <laughs> I also don't feel like I need to go out to eat because I'm so exhausted and I just want the pleasure of someone serving me. I don't need as many massages or pedicures. <laughs> I don't, you know, when I travel, like, like I'm more happy even at home. So, um, I mean, certainly things have changed since the pandemic and I'm not traveling the way that I used to, but I need less money than I needed before because I'm just more content with, with just being in my own skin, in my own life, in my own home. So, um, yeah. And then you did say something about, you know, sustaining the practice and you mentioned something about kind of the social aspects of it. And, you know, I said, if I, I could write this book for the rest of my life, continuing to explore makers and expanding upon what I had done. And I, and I think in terms of the social aspect and in particular, like the diversity of people in the book, I really wish that there was more diversity in the book. I think it's been in the last couple of years, um, in terms of everything that's been changing in our culture here in the States um, and the Black Lives Matter movement, I feel like I became aware of the, the bubble that I lived in in a way that I hadn't been aware previously. And that has really helped me to kind of expand or try to like push the bubble and make it bigger or you know I guess you can't not live in some sort of bubble so I feel like you know that was a challenge when I was working on the book you know I wasn't I found that I mean to be honest like I was finding you know I was like oh I need to find you know I want to find somebody who does this kind of work at one point I was looking for someone who makes soap and I never found that person but I kept on finding like white women who made soap and and I was like I have so many white women and it's not that I don't it, it just became really complicated um mm. but I realize now that I was I didn't even understand the bubble that I was in so like even though I was searching for more diversity I was in this bubble mm. that was sort of reflecting back to me like what I already knew <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so um I don't know. I think you were somehow sort of asking a question that was related to that. And, and I, I'm not sure if you were though now. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I, I appreciate your honesty and I understand that that's a challenge. I mean, if I'm being totally transparent, it's something that I've had to deal with on the podcast as well, you mm -hmm. know, in finding guests and people to talk to. You know, it's, it's learning and it's honesty and vulnerability. Right. You know, you're never going to get it right, right, but you have to try and, and, you know, it's good to listen and to be present. And so I appreciate you going there and, and yeah. talking about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's really important to, to, it's important to me to just be listening mm -hmm. and to be, um, growing. And, and recognizing the bubble, um, and pushing, pushing it to make it bigger has, has really, um, introduced me to, to 
a lot more people and work that really excites me. Absolutely. You've written many books and you've worked on various creative projects. Um, I'm wondering if you have any new projects that you're working on. I am in the planning stages of a new book, but I haven't signed the contract yet. I haven't gotten the contract yet. It's a follow-up to Making a Life, but it's just kind of different. But I can't I can't talk about it specifically yet because I don't want to jinx it. But um, as part of that work, I... Um, I intend to try to send out a questionnaire to makers far and wide and, and get feedback on, and some questions I have and areas I'm interested in. So I do hope people will follow me on Instagram or Facebook or look at my website and, and, um, so that when that time comes that I can hopefully reach a very diverse and broad, um, spectrum of people. Um, in the meantime, I am, currently the editor and creative director of Modern Daily Knitting Field Guides. And I also am working with some individuals and small companies, helping them to self-publish their books um, to a really high standard. So that that keeps me busy. Um, but honestly, I have really changed the pace of my work and I make a lot more time for um for wandering, for doing my own handwork, for mending things, um, and just for kind of challenging myself, uh, challenging the narratives I have about what I am and am not capable of. And um, it feels so good to really be, have, to have let go of my fear of, you know, not having enough money in the future and my sort of concern about who am I if I don't have a particular professional title. And so I absolutely need to work and I do work, but I am, I try to be careful um, and make sure that I also have time to go out in my garden and pull the weeds and go in my yard and mow and spend time at the pottery studio. And um, I find that when I spend my days um thinking about trying to do what I want to do when, when I want to do it, I do get my work done, but sometimes that means at odd hours, I trying to get out of the habit of always like getting up in the morning and looking at my phone and then going to my desk and sitting on my computer. And I find um, when I start to procrastinate, if I just say to myself, Melanie, what do you want to be doing right now? And then I listen to what that inner voice tells me and I do that, I'm able to sort of come back to whatever it was that I was procrastinating about. You know, that might be work at my computer. That tends to be the thing I procrastinate about. Um, but I'll come back to it and do it when I'm in, um, in, in a better state of mind to being, for being productive. And so it, it, it really makes my daily life so much better to just trust myself and not feel like I need to chain myself to my desk. Mm, absolutely. And where can people go on social media and the internet to follow your work and to purchase your book? Um, well, they you have to follow me on the internet is super easy because I'm Melanie Fallick on Instagram and on Facebook and my website is melaniefallick.com. And 
you can purchase my book wherever books are sold. Um, (laughs) they, um, you know, there are some independent yarn shops that carry it. It's always great to, um, to support them. Bookshop.org is an online, um, source where you can order a book and then the order will be fulfilled through the local bookstore that you choose. Um, or you can buy it on Amazon or on the Barnes and Noble websites, whatever feels right. And you can also get it at a lot of libraries. So I hope people will, will find it and be inspired by it and share it with others if they are inspired by it. Wonderful. So before you go, we have one question that we ask everyone that joins the podcast. And that is, do you have any advice or words of wisdom to share with weavers and textile enthusiasts? Yeah, I would say um, do not underestimate the value of handwork. Remember that it is a pathway to wellness. I equate it to eating healthy food, to exercising, to getting fresh air every day. It is um, essential to so many of us. And then I would say, write down what makes you feel the most vibrant and content. Also define what success means to you and look at what you've written regularly so that you can consciously live according to these values and beliefs. Amazing. This has been such a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you for having me. That's a wrap. If you're interested in picking up a copy of Making a Life or supporting more of Melanie's projects, you can find links in the show notes at www.justyarn.com slash episode 143. Thank you for tuning into this week's episode. Until next time, happy weaving. Happy weaving.